Please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 63. We're going to be starting at verse 15 in Isaiah 63, and then we'll be reading through to the end of chapter 64. It's all one big prayer that Isaiah is praying, so we need to take it all together. It seems like a really big chunk, but it's not, it's not that bad. Again, we'll be in Isaiah for the next few weeks, and we'll be starting a uh, study in the book of Galatians, so I encourage you to begin reading that. Before we go to God's word today, let's go to him in prayer and ask for his help with it. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we come as a people who are confused by the things around us. We come as a people who don't even hardly understand ourselves, much less other people in the world around us, the goings-ons of the world, the things that we can't have any control over. And so, Lord, as we come, we pray that you would settle our hearts, that you would give us rest even now as we come together as your people to hear your word preached. We pray that you would settle our souls, that we might learn from our Creator and our Redeemer, that you would guide us to the truth this morning. Give us rest and peace, we pray. Amen. So as I read through this, it made me think of those times in life, and I've had plenty of these, where you know you have done something wrong, you said something that was completely inappropriate, you said you've hurt someone, you have done something wrong in some way, and there's no way around it, you just have to go and you have to ask forgiveness, and you have to ask for mercy. There are lots of things, and lots of different stories that we could tell toward this end. But at the end of the day, when you've done something wrong, the only right thing is to go and ask forgiveness. We have a difficult time with this because we think... That, well, maybe we can fix it, right? Maybe there's something else that we can do. There's some sort of right that we can do to balance the wrong that we've done in order to make it better. And usually when we do this, it only makes it worse, right? The words that we say, we need need mercy. We need forgiveness. And that, that matters. We have trouble asking others for mercy and forgiveness, other people. How much more then are we going to have trouble asking that from our Lord? In our passage today, we see Isaiah praying a prayer for mercy as he's coming to the full realization that the people of God need a direct intervention from their Lord. I think as we look around at our own country and even the church of this country in particular, we should also see that we need these things as well. And this is a hard thing to ask for, as we'll see. Isaiah's prayer with God here in this passage is difficult. It brings up some very difficult ideas that we're going to be working through. So as we work through the text, I want to break it up into three main sections. First, a prayer for mercy. Second, a prayer for intervention. And then lastly, the prayer for sanctification. So... Turn with me to Isaiah 63, verse 15, and please stand with me as we read from God's Word. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's Holy Word. Isaiah 63, 
starting at verse 15. Look down from heaven and see, from your holy and beautiful habitation, where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our, our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer, from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden your heart so that we may, that we may fear you not? Return for your, for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, nor nor I has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways Behold, you were angry and we sinned in our sins. We have been a long time and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind takes us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, and you are our potter, and we are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house, where our, where our fathers praised you, has been burned by fire, and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So for a little context, some of the language here is really interesting, and if you consider the time that Isaiah was doing ministry and some of the other prophets that were also doing ministry during this time. Namely, one of them was Hosea. Hosea was a prophet to the northern kingdom. And remember, we dealt with the northern kingdom in the early part of Isaiah when the northern kingdom was taken over by Assyria and those ten tribes basically ceased to be. In Hosea's book, he writes about God's instructions for naming his own children, for Hosea's children. And I think it's helpful for us to understand some of that as we deal with Isaiah's feelings here. And so turn with me to the book of Hosea. We're going to look at chapter 1. And I want to read this section, 
verses 2 through 9, where Hosea's children are named. And just note Hosea's situation here. I'm sure that you're familiar with it. But note the names that he's instructed to name his children. As Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name, No Mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by the bow or by the sword or by the by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. It's pretty tough. Jezreel, the first uh, child that we aren't really given uh, what their name means, their name literally means God will scatter. So Hosea's children were, first of all, noted, note that his children were with a prostitute, which God regularly compared the people of God to that. And they were named, God will scatter, no mercy, and not my people. Do you think God was trying to send a message through the prophet Hosea? And we saw the fulfillment of that in the first part of Isaiah. As the northern kingdom was sacked by Syria. Judah was nearly destroyed, but God had mercy on them, as he said he was, as he told Hosea he was going to do. And so that's all building. And so in Isaiah's prayer in our text today, we have some of those same emotions. Isaiah, Isaiah even uses some of the same language. The last time we were together, we saw the vengeance of God and his, his mercy also, and they were set, set against one another. So in Isaiah's prayer, we read his plea for mercy because he he knows that the people of Judah need it. We, too, brothers and sisters in Christ, need the mercy of our Lord. The text today shows us why we need it and what God is going to do to bring that about. So look with me at the first point, the prayer for mercy. Look with me again at verses 15 and 16 of Isaiah 63. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful Habitation, where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. So here, Isaiah calls upon the Lord to remember his people of old, to look down on them and to see them and have compassion on them. Remember that he is a loving father to his children. But it's not just that. He asked them a question. Where is your compassion? Where is your mercy? Why are these things held back from us? And he doubles down in verses 16 and 17. Or verses 17. Oh Lord, why do you make us wander? Why do you make us wander? 
from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not. We might think this is hard language because, well, it is. It's difficult for us to wrap our head around this and understand it. It's hard for us to see God in this light, one who hardens the hearts of his people so that they would wander away from him. It might be very strange were it not for the constant reminders throughout Scripture that this is a form of his judgment, even upon his own people. In fact, in one of the most famous passages of Scripture, the call of the prophet Isaiah, which we've gone through, he tells Isaiah that his preaching will indeed cause the people of God to wander away. Look with me quickly at Isaiah chapter 6. This is a passage we've looked at a few times as we've been going through. It's a very important passage in understanding the way this whole book is laid out. And this is where the, the prophet is being called of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 6, and, he's the, and Isaiah is given instructions to start at verse 8. He says, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say this to the people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? Isaiah's like, How long do I have to preach this message? This is not good. And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, without inhabitant, and the houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. It's funny because we like to quote verse 8 quite a bit when we send out, say, like a short-term mission team or something. Who will who will go? Here I am, send me. You know, if we're sending out a mission team to another country or something like that. But if you look at the context here, God is sending out Isaiah to preach a very particular message. And the message is going to have the effect of hardening the people in order to turn them away from God. And he is to do this, Isaiah is to do this, until the cities are destroyed, until the people are taken away into exile. Which is exactly what happens in the northern kingdom, and which he's going to bring about for Judah as well. Later, after Isaiah was actually killed for his preaching, long after that even. This is hard because we'd, we'd love to think that as we end the book of Isaiah, that the messages are going to get softer, right? That we've kind of gone through the difficult passages and right here at the end, the prophet is praying and begging for God to relent so that they will be seen by him favorably again. He echoes Hosea's words in verse 19. We have become like those whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. It could be that Isaiah had even heard the name of Hosea's children. We have become like those who are not your people. 
There are a few things that I want to pull out here. First, that Isaiah isn't preaching from a high place. This is an interesting thing, and I think it shows Isaiah's character. He's he's calling down at a people who need mercy. He's not saying, you guys need mercy. What is he saying? We need your mercy. Remember in Isaiah 6 again, when Isaiah came before the Lord, he confessed himself a sinner, a man of unclean lips, living among a people of unclean lips. He saw himself as needing the same mercy as the people that he ministered to. There was no finger pointing at all in Isaiah's ministry. If we want to see revival in the church in this country, brothers and sisters in Christ, our focus shouldn't be on calling out the sins of other churches. How they should shape up and do better. But we need to look at our own hearts. A prayer for mercy is a helpful start in that direction because mercy, by definition, is completely undeserved. This is a different thing from grace, which we understand grace to be because Grace is a thing that is given to us. It's like a gift. It's the blessings of God in Christ. We have all of those blessings. We experience the grace of God because Jesus is good. He gives us blessing even though we don't deserve it. Right? He gives us things. just piles them upon us. Mercy is when something is withheld from us that we do deserve. We deserve punishment and consequence, yet those consequences are withheld from us instead. I'd go so far as to say that most of our misunderstandings about the character of God, especially concerning this kind of language in Scripture, most of our misunderstandings about the character of God come from a place inside of us that believes that we deserve much better than we have received. And when we read Isaiah's question, Why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart? Our main problem with that exists because we somehow think that we are different than the others that actually deserve that kind of treatment from him. And when we start to see ourselves as part of the problem, we'll realize the help that we have in Christ. Isaiah sees this and he calls upon the Lord for intervention. And that brings me to the second point, us prayer for intervention. Look with me at 64, verses 1 and 2. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations might tremble at your presence. Isaiah's desire is for the Lord to come down, to make his presence known. The picture here he borrows from a few places. Psalm 18, which we read from this morning, from the Exodus in Mount Sinai, the the picture of the Lord on the mountain, on Mount Sinai, quaking the mountain. The idea here is that God was very present during those times. He delivered his people from their enemies. He showed himself to his people and the works that he did. In fact, as you read through this, verses 4 and 5, you know, from of old, no one has heard or ear perceived, nor eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. We understand there is no God 
like him, who acts for those who wait for him, who meets them joyfully, who do works of righteousness. But that's just the problem, is it not? There weren't any who did works of righteousness. Even Isaiah, who was probably among the best of them, lumped himself into the masses who sinned against the Lord. He called himself a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. In verse 5, you get the idea that Isaiah is out of options. You meet him joyfully, who works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways, behold, you were angry. And we sin in our sins. We have, we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? The Lord has hardened the hearts of his people. They've turned away from him. And now he's angry at them. They've been in their sins so long that he's afraid that there's no hope for them. This is a tough place. And he qualifies that kind of sinfulness in verse 6. And verse 6 is one that is often used to illustrate our own uncleanliness before the Lord, we have all become like one who is unclean. And our righteous deeds, and all of our righteous deeds, even the things that we look at and say this is a good thing, are like a polluted garment. The Lord meets those who joyfully work righteousness, is what it just said, but our problem is that our righteous deeds, those works of righteousness, are like a polluted garment. The thing that we would present before him and say, see, look, here's the thing that I've done, now please help me, is no good. Rather than making us clean and does just the opposite. It makes us unclean. In fact, it keeps us unclean. And he sums it up in verse 7. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us. And you have made us melt in the hand of your iniquities. No one calls upon the name of the Lord. He's caused us to be in our own iniquities. If you're a student of history, you see this very thing happen throughout history. Even in the most secular sense. If you're looking at history from a purely secular viewpoint, when a nation becomes wholly immoral, they seem to just melt away in that immorality. Rome, of course, is a textbook example of this, but there are plenty, plenty of others, a couple of nations that we deal with in this book. In fact, Syria and Babylon are great examples of that. So when you read from a Christian perspective on the problems of the church and the country, there are very few talking about it in biblical terms. They want to speak about it in secular terms. We just need, think about all the things that the church needs. Or you hear people say, We need education, or we need more money, or we need better leaders. And again, that's just the church talking. Rather than seeing the hand of God pressed against his people, we continue to polish our polluted garments as if they have a power to save us. Rather than finding the solution from within, we need what Isaiah prays for here. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down that the nations might tremble at your presence that we the church might tremble again at the presence of God that we would stop dusting off our polluted garments 
and exchange them for the righteous robes of Christ Jesus our Lord. Understand, church, Isaiah's prayer to some degree is answered in history, is it not? That you would rend the heavens and come down. God did indeed come down. We celebrate that next Saturday as a tradition in our country. But we celebrate it every week that Jesus came down and was among his people. And when he came, he he didn't rend the heavens like we see here, like we, we'd love to see. Rather, he was quietly placed in a feeding trough. Now, to be sure, the heavens were very alive that night. The shepherds were floored to see it, to hear the angels proclaim the name of Christ the Lord. And their proclamation wasn't just for some good guy who was going to come and make things right, but concerning this baby that was born, they said, Glory be to God in the highest. God came down that night and he lived among his people and he preached the message of the kingdom and they hated him for it and they killed him. But it's not over there because if it was, we'd be stuck. We'd be stuck with our own polluted garment, as it were, with no hope of satisfying a holy God. But instead, the coming of Jesus made it to where the Father can look at us and say, I'm not angry with you. He doesn't make us stay in those polluted garments either. And that brings us to the last point, prayer for sanctification. Look at, the, look at verses 8 and 9 with me. But now, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Notice the prayer here. We are still working with mercy. The Lord is acting mercifully to his people. And Isaiah's prayer is one that he would complete that task. And notice his Isaiah's stance here is one of complete submission. And we need to understand this, brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not that Isaiah is coming forward and finally allowing God, quote unquote, to do his work. It's not as if God is going to say, well, about time, Isaiah. I was wondering when you'd let me work in your life. That's not how God works. Isaiah isn't submitting, allowing God to finally work. Isaiah is acknowledging the situation at hand. We are the clay of the Lord. He is the potter. Our acknowledgement of that doesn't make it true. It's true whether or not we acknowledge it. Romans 9 gives us a great dealing with this particular thought. I encourage you to read that for your own study. It gives us a very clear understanding of this as Paul quotes from this section of Scripture. The Lord is the one who holds the cards. Therefore, we plead His mercy. And this is the great part for us as Christians because in Christ, we don't plead as outsiders. We're not on the outside just hoping 
that the Lord will deal favorably with us. We aren't hoping for the best as we stand before a holy God. We, along with Isaiah, we plead the righteousness of Christ. Isaiah saw Jesus' day and was glad. He was glad because he knew that it allowed him to stand before the throne of God and to plead mercy and to know that he would receive it. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean Isaiah's life was going to be all peace and love and rainbows? No. Isaiah was martyred for his faith. He was killed for preaching the message that he was instructed to preach. But does that mean that we, when we stand before a holy God, we stand as those that the Lord intends to save? That He doesn't look at us, He doesn't look at that polluted garment that we had. Instead, He sees the, the righteous robes of the Son, Jesus Christ. Not only that, brothers and sisters in Christ, He plans to continue to shape us and to mold us. And he continues to do that. Even as, I, as we look at our current state, wondering, is there any hope for us? As we look at our own sin, we know that he is the potter. We are the clay. And he intends to make us more and more into the mold of his son. As you continue on in verses 11 and 12, this suggests the Lord is not done with his people Israel, and he wasn't. Remember, Isaiah wrote these words before the Babylonian captivity. This is still all ahead of them. Judah would still deal with the consequences for their sin. Does the Lord still act in this way? Yes, because he doesn't change. Can we know exactly what the Lord is doing? No. The only thing that we have is his word which instructs us plainly to preach the good news of Jesus Christ, to call people to repentance. That doesn't mean that we'll all have, we'll have all the in-between business worked out. It doesn't mean that God isn't going to deal and won't deal with countries and churches in particular ways. Surely He does. But it means that no matter what, for all time, people who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We'll find mercy that when God looks upon those people, he'll see the righteousness of Christ, not their old righteousness, their polluted garments, but instead they'll see the righteous robes of Jesus Christ. By calling upon the name of Jesus, we receive mercy. By trusting in the name of Jesus, brothers and sisters in Christ, we remember the mercy that we have. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, call upon his name. And receive mercy. We receive mercy because Jesus took the punishment that was due us. And this frees us to live as we ought to exchange again that garment of our own righteousness for the righteous robes of Jesus Christ. So in conclusion, brothers and sisters, if we want to see change in our country, if we want to see change in the church, we must acknowledge our own sin. Turn from it. Turn to Jesus. It's not the only message, or it's the only message for a lost world. But it's also the message for the church. We don't stop needing him. So let us continually remember the message of the gospel. Let's go to him in prayer.
Our Lord Jesus, as we come before You, we beg Your mercy. We know that You are a merciful God because of what You have done, because of what You have said, because of who You are. We plead Your mercy, not because of our own righteousness, because our own righteousness is nothing. But we plead mercy because of Your righteousness. Lord, we pray for our, for the lost world around us, that they would call upon Your name and be saved, that You would be glorified in that. We pray, Lord, that You would continue to grow us in Your grace and mercy, that You would see fit to grow us to be more like You. So, Lord, we pray that You would be with us as we consider this, Your Word, even though it's difficult, Lord, we pray that You would grow us in it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.